We finished 2 Corinthians last week. And I was praying about where to go from here. We have some friends that have three sons. They named their sons Matthew, Mark, and John. And I, I always I kidded them at the time. I said, uh, where's Luke? You know, where's Luke? So as I'm uh, thinking about that and preparing, I thought about that. I said, you know, I've never preached through the, through the book of Luke. I preach messages out of Luke, but I've never preached through the book of Luke. And I started to look at it and study it a little bit. And I said, you know, I think this is providential too. This, The Lord is leading us definitely to uh, get into the book of Luke. So this morning we began to explore the book of Luke. This is pretty much an introductory message, so it's going to be a little different. But uh, Luke is one of the three Gospels that scholars refer to as synoptics. They call them synoptics because they view the life of Christ from a kind of a common perspective covering many of the same events and in the same basic order. John comes along, he was written much later, and, and it's completely, just almost completely different. Uh, John reveals to us more of the deity of Christ and his being the Son of God, bringing eternal life to those who trust in him. And so John stands alone in several ways, which we don't have any time to go into this morning. So let's begin this morning. I'd like to have you take your Bibles to the book of Luke. And... There's the introductory verses, uh, 1 through 4. I'm going to read those here for you right now. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from uh, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught so I've named the sermon this morning that you may have certainty but uh, what we want to do is is look at this introduction and it's going to be a little different because not so much uh, a verse by verse here but uh, notice we uh, he was not an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ he gathered information and compiled that information searched that information out like a good Berean and, ga- and uh, having gathered it and compiled it, he wrote this book, and he says he wrote it to a fellow by the name of Theophilus. Who is Theophilus? We're not told that Luke wrote it. In fact, his name does not appear here at all. And uh, we, uh, we know that he also wrote the book of Acts because it's, it starts out basically the same way and names the same fellow, Theophilus although Luke's name does not appear even in the book of Acts. So the question is, who wrote it? Well, we can can say with some certainty that uh, those that were closest to this time 
the early church fathers pretty much are, are in agreement concerning this. Fellows like Irenaeus, uh, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, among others, tell us that Luke was the author. Paul mentions him, the beloved physician, and I'll point that out in a second. So then who is Luke? The word Luke, or the name Luke, is from the Greek Laucus. It's a form of the Latin Lucanus. Lucanus means light giver. So, as I said, what we know of the author of that gospel is found then among the early church fathers. And according to them, Luke was a Greek slave who served a wealthy Roman family as a physician. Somewhere along the line, he gained his freedom and settled in Antioch of Syria. He was unmarried and remained unmarried his whole life and died at the age of 84. And his gospel proves that he was a very intelligent man and highly educated. Luke undoubtedly became a believer when the persecuted saints from Jerusalem were scattered everywhere and carried the gospel as they went. Acts chapter 8 verse 4 says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And then in chapter 11 verses 19 and 21 we read, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The church of Jerusalem, hearing about uh, this great expansion of the gospel, sent Barnabas to Antioch to investigate the reports. When he saw what the Lord was doing there, the scripture tells us here in uh, 11.23, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He then went to Tarsus, where he sought out the Apostle Paul and brought him back to Antioch with him. And there they served together, teaching the people for about a year. And it was in then Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. And after that year, the Holy Spirit said, Separate me out, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. No doubt, Luke met Paul in Antioch, where he too was serving in the same church. The early church fathers identify him also as a Gentile, the only Gentile author of any book in the Bible that we know for, for certainty. And this is also substantiated by the scriptures. Let me just share a few things here. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul mentions three men, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justus, whom then he referred to as the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. That's 
chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. But then he proceeded to name three more. Epaphras, who is one of you, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. That's verses 12 to 14. Luke is included with those not of the circumcision. Right between two of them. Epaphras and Demas, who we know were Gentiles. So if Luke is not of the circumcision, is named with these three Gentiles, we can carefully conclude that he was not a Jew, but, but was Gentile. And again, and let point this one out, in Acts chapter 1, the Lord ordered them, the disciples, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So during this wait, they gathered together and prayed and, and uh, discussed things. And one of the things that they wanted to do was to elect among them, their number someone to replace Judas who had committed suicide. And uh, they replaced him with Matt and Matthias. Peter, in addressing the Jews concerning this matter and, and, and of the death of Judas in Acts chapter 1, verses 15 to 26, we read here in verses 18 and 19, there's a parenthesis. The parenthesis here clearly shows us that it was inserted by the author of Acts to explain how Judas died and what followed. Note, note particularly verse number 19, which reads, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. Now pay attention to these words, in their language. If Luke was a Jew, he would not have said this, since a keldama would have been in his own language. Another clue is found in Acts chapter 16 where Paul and Silas were jailed in Philippi on the charge, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. That's Acts 16.20. Timothy and Luke were with them and were not jailed because they're Gentiles. Even though Timothy was a half-Jew. He was not circumcised until his adult years. In fact, uh, Acts chapter 16 uh, describes that as well. Now, the, Luke, the Luke's being the author of this book that bears his name is also supported by these early church fathers and the book of Acts, which he also wrote. Most of the books, the book of Acts, uh, is written in the third person. But uh, there are several passages that are called the we passages that would indicate that the author was present. So we put some things together. And uh, for example, as we noted earlier, when, when they were in Philippi, Paul and Silas were jailed for being Jews and disturbing the city. We know that Luke was also there. How do we know that? Because that's one of the we passages. Uh, 
when uh, he they were looking in the after the first missionary journey, they were looking for another place to serve. So they tried this place, and the spirit said no. And they went to another place, and the spirit tried to go to another place. The spirit said no. So the scripture says they sailed. So they sailed by Messiah uh, and came to Troas. There Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia who said, come over and help us. And then we read him there, that's Acts 16.9, and there we read, Luke records, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia. In concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So obviously, Luke joined Paul's associates in Troas. From this point on, Luke stayed with Paul, even to his imprisonment in Rome. We know this because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul said, Luke alone is with me. Very possible there that Luke accompanied Paul because of his physical needs. And I kind of guess, this is, a, this is my guesstimation of the situation, as we read Paul's life there, that he was stoned in uh, Lystra, left for dead. They thought he was dead. They drug his body outside the city thinking he was dead. The disciples gathered around his body I think to pray and he got up did God restore life to him or did God heal him we don't know exactly it doesn't it doesn't tell us there but in as we were preaching there from 2nd Corinthians we learned that uh, Paul tells of occasion where he knows a man he doesn't know whether in the body or out of the body who actually was taken into the very presence of God in glory and heard and saw things that he was that's impossible for him to utter. Now we know it was Paul because he because he makes that clear. He gives it in the third person, but I think he was trying, you know, he was seeking not to brag about it. So, was Paul uh, really stoned to death? And if he, even if he were only injured, can you imagine the, the uh, uh, damage that that did to his body? As I pointed out, they weren't throwing pebbles at him. They were throwing huge stones to crush him and kill him. He must have suffered a number of broken bones and perhaps never completely recovered. And maybe this is what uh, Paul was referring to as his thorn in the flesh. The physical condition that was constantly troubling him. And he prayed and sought the Lord three times that, it might, that he might take it from him. But the Lord told him, no, my grace is sufficient for you. God wanted to prove to Paul that it's not human strength that enables his servants to glorify his name, but it's God's power in them that glorifies his name. And that his broken and weak body 
which may be why the, the folks there in Corinth were kind of dismissing him. He can't be an apostle of God. Look at his broken and weak body. No, Paul said, God called me. And I don't operate by the power by human strength and human power. I operate by the power of God that's been given to me. Wow. So it is very likely then that uh, I think Luke penned this gospel when he was in Caesarea when Paul there was incarcerated for those two years where they tried to, tried to release him, but he appealed to Caesar, and therefore they sent him to Rome to fulfill what God had told them in the, him in the beginning when he was uh, first became a believer there, that, I, that you're going to give my testimony before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Now, secondly here, notice... The things that you were taught. Interestingly, Luke's gospel, uh, much of what is recorded in Luke's gospel is common to other gospels, but there, but half of his material is found only in Luke. Luke is the longest of the gospels. And he has huge amounts of material that are found nowhere else. In fact, one section there uh, from chapter 9 verse 51 all through chapter 19 verse 27 highlights Jesus' final journey from Galilee to Jerusalem and it contains many parables not found in any of the other gospels. One distinguishing mark of Luke is his emphasis on the universality of the gospel. He's a Gentile and God has saved him and he's traveled with Paul as God has saved Gentiles in all of these other cities. And I think he was concerned that there be a, a, a gospel that could be considered a Gentile gospel. Highlighting the life of the Lord Jesus Christ with the universal uh, emphasis not simply for the Jews as their Messiah. He was the Savior of the world. Notice in Luke chapter 2, verses 30 to 32. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. A light, for the a light of revelation for the Gentiles. And then again in chapter 24, verses 46 and 47, we read, Thus it is written that Christ, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Presenting Jesus as the Savior of all people. Luke then emphasizes his ministry to the poor, to the outcast, 
and to women, which is strange. One, one important clue is that Luke penned both Gospels as letters to, in, to an individual by the name of Theophilus. Who is Theophilus? Other than his name appearing in the introduction to Luke's books, both Luke and Acts, we know nothing about him. But there are some clues. First of all, his name is Greek. And that suggested he was a Gentile. His name means one who loves God or a God lover. Loving God. Gentiles were drawn to the Jewish faith and those Gentiles drawn to the Jewish faith were called God-fearers. In Acts chapter 13, verse 16, Paul said to them, men of Israel, and you who fear God. He's speaking in a synagogue there. And he said, men of Israel, and you who fear God. Separating these two classes. Who were those who feared God? They were Gentiles who were drawn to the God of Abraham. God-fearers. Cornelius, for example, was a Roman Gentile part of the army. And he's described in Acts chapter 10, verse 3, as a devout man who feared God with all his household. To fear God and to love God are synonymous. Do you fear God? If you fear God, it's because you love Him. You're more concerned about what He thinks about you than anything else or anyone else. Gentiles wanted to know this God. Why did they want to know Him? Because God was drawing them to Himself through His Spirit. They wanted to hear the truth. They wanted to love this God. So they loved God, they feared God. That's the same one and the same thing. It says, I believe then that Theophilus is really not an individual, although he may have been, but I think it's more than that. It's a symbolic name for all Gentile God-fearers to whom he is writing. All Gentile God-fearers. Both Matthew and Luke present the genealogy of Jesus. Here's another interesting thing. Matthew and, and shows here how he is writing to Gentiles. Matthew and Luke both have the genealogy of Jesus. They're the only two Gospels that do. Matthew's genealogy differs from Luke's in that Matthew begins with Abraham and shows his lineage through David and Solomon to Joseph, Jesus' father. And I say father, I mean by that I mean that uh, he, he was uh, the adopted son of Joseph. Joseph was not his uh, father because Jesus was virgin born. He's not his biological father. So Matthew then develops his legal legacy. Jesus can't be the king of Israel unless he is through Solomon. 
But he's through Solomon because he was adopted by Joseph into his family as his son. But that's not enough. But that gives him the legal right to the throne. Luke, on the other hand, develops the genealogy of Jesus. This is in chapter 3, verses 23 to, 20, to 38. Excuse me. He traces his lineage back to Mary through David. And Abraham all the way back to Adam. So that he starts here at the top and goes down, whereas Matthew started with Abraham and went up. Luke goes down all the way to Adam, the son of God. Luke shows Jesus' actual connection to the whole human race that has, as having descended from Adam, who was Jew, both Jew and Gentile. He came to save. He is the second Adam. So without question, Luke wrote his gospel to appeal to the Gentiles. And a clear proof of this is his inclusion of incidents involving Gentiles not recorded in any other gospel. For example, Luke records Jesus' teaching in the synagogue at Nazareth when he began his ministry in his own hometown. And the scripture tells us that he opened the text of Isaiah 61 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There in uh, Luke 4, 6-19. When he returned the scroll to the attendant, he turned to the, to the uh, synagogue crowd and he said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Which then Luke comments that when they heard it, they all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Ah, but Jesus can't leave it there. So what he does is deliberately now provokes them. He has offended them by provoking them with the truth. Not deliberately seeking to offend them, but to provoke them with the truth which did offend them. And the truth and about his hometown. He said, "A prophet, truly I t I say to you a prophet no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Then he proceeded to give two illustrations. He said there were many widows in uh, Israel during the days of Elijah when Elijah prayed that it would not rain for three years. God first took care of him there by the brook Cherith, ravens bringing him lunch. I've often thought about that. What was that like? And getting your meals from the ravens. But then when the brook dried up because of the famine, I mean, the no rain, <laughs> the brook dried up. We're familiar with that around here. <laughs> the, God took care of him through a widow. And he said there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, but God used the widow of Zarephath of Sidon, a Gentile, to care for his needs. Then he doubled down. He said, next he then pointed out that all of all the lepers 
in Israel during the time of Elisha, none were cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian, a Gentile. <laughs> and when the people heard that, that, they were outraged. They were filled with wrath. They drove him out of the synagogue, out of the city, and out of town. They tried to throw him over the cliff. But he escaped from their presence. In chapter 10, Luke records Jesus' rebuke of the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida, towns in Israel, saying that if the works that were done in them had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile cities, they would have repented. Wow, what a rebuke. In chapter 10, we also have then the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is the Good Samaritan? A Gentile. Who coming along found this man who was injured uh, because he had fallen among thieves. And he took this man and had compassion on him and took care of him and at his own expense. This wounded man lay on the side of the road and then he says he was ignored by a Jewish priest and a Levite who just deliberately on seeing him passed by on the other side. Luke gives the most complete account of Jesus' ancestry, birth and development. He wanted to present Jesus as the perfect son of man. We read that in our scripture this morning, the days of the Son of Man. And, it, and it's a reference back to Daniel chapter 7. This divine being who is this, called the Son of Man. And G, that was Jesus' favorite term for himself. And Luke uses, uses it almost exclusively for Jesus' self-identification. This perfect Son of Man is one who identifies himself with hum humanity in its sinful plight in order to accomplish the work of salvation. Luke demonstrates that Jesus fulfills the human ideal of perfection. Demonstrated here in his temptation where the first Adam failed, the, the Son of Man, the second Adam, triumphed. Both Adam and Jesus faced three aspects of temptation. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, according to 1 John 2, verse 16. The first Adam, through Eve, saw that the tree was good for food. The second Adam, though he was hungry, refused to turn the stones into bread. Adam found the fruit pleasant to the eyes. Jesus, upon being shown all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and told he could have them and possess them, he saw them. And Satan said, I'll give them to you if you'll just fall down here and worship me. Jesus refused and because he would not submit to Satan's condition to have them. Thirdly, there's this issue of the pride of life. Pride's a sin. We're in the sin month. 
Pride is a sin. It is the detrimental sin of humanity. And when Adam, the first Adam, looked at the fruit, he saw that it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. If I could have this, I would be improved greatly. Now, how does that work with, with Jesus? The scripture tells us that he took him to a high pinnacle of the temple and said, throw yourself down. For, and then he quoted scripture to him. The angels have charge over you and they'll bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. Well, what's the issue here? If Jesus had thrown himself off the temple, he would have been seen by a great crowd. They would have been impressed with what they saw as the angel came in and scooped him up and prevented him from injuring his foot. He would have been wow and would have stood out in the popular opinion of the people. No, Jesus said, you're not going to tempt the Lord my God. I will not tempt the Lord my God. So, and I love the way that the, that Luke concludes the, the temptation there in, in verse 14. It says, and then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Jesus lived by the power of the Spirit of God. And he returned to Galilee, where more Gentiles were. And the report about him went through all the surrounding country. God gave the report, not a, a phenomenal display that Jesus would have done. God did it through His Spirit. Thirdly, and I want to, this is the last point here, Luke stresses that Jesus introduces the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is pre, preeminent in the Gospel of Luke. This is important, and one of the problems that we have, and this is my problem, is uh, because I was trained in a in a different view of the kingdom of God. I have I had a tendency to to look at it differently than what the book of Luke is presenting it as. I grew up as a in dispensational theology and I saw the kingdom as really a future thing for Israel and really didn't I didn't have anything to do with it although you know one day I would share in that kingdom with the other New Testament Christians but that the kingdom was really not for us at all it was for the Jews why get excited about something that I'm just going to work in for a thousand years and then <laughs> be done with it so, uh, with that in mind, what you read the book of Luke and you read about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God just kind of soars over your head and it really doesn't have any impact on you. But here's the, po here's the problem. This is a great truth that Luke presents here. And he presents it to Gentiles because he is telling them that this kingdom that God has promised in Old Testament scriptures is for them. Two. 
and that Jesus, the Son of Man, is bringing in that kingdom. A kingdom that shall not pass away. And see, this is Jesus' problem in His early ministry was the expectation of the Jews with respect to the Messiah and Jesus fulfilling that expectation in their presence some, they said it's not this is not what we expected and that's why they rejected him and put him on a cross ah there's interestingly 46 direct references to the kingdom of god in luke luke only uses the term kingdom of god he, there's a couple of places where he just talks about the kingdom but but 46 references to the kingdom of God are found. Matthew, on the other hand, his predominant uh, message is the kingdom of heaven. And I believe that is important too because Matthew's trying to tell the Jews, and I, there's a lot about Matthew I don't have time to go into. For, let me just share this briefly with you. One thing, why would God choose a tax collector to write a gospel to the Jews about their Messiah. I mean, that doesn't make a lot of sense. They hated tax collectors because they were compromisers with the Gentiles that were overlording it over them. Every time they saw Matthew, they, remi they were reminded of the fact that they were not living under the kingdom of God, they were living under the kingdom of man, and that that Gentile dog up there in Rome was their leader. So I, I really don't, I don't think that's Matthew's message. I mean, I really don't think that's his emphasis. But he's when he uses the term kingdom of heaven, he's referring to the fact that Jesus is now in heaven and that we are experiencing the kingdom of heaven during this gospel, this period of gospel proclamation. So, of these 46 references here to the kingdom of God in Luke, and I'm not going to hang on. I'm not going to deal with all of here. I just want to give you a sampling. It starts out here with Gabriel's message to Mary about her son. It says he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be, <clears throat> excuse me, no end. Luke 1, 32 and 33. Note an, uh, uh, another example here in chapter 4, verse 43. I, Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. In other words, Jesus came to preach the gospel of the kingdom. That was his message. I'm, I'm, I am your Messiah, and I'm here to declare to you the gospel of the kingdom. And now I've got to go to other places and preach the good news of the gospel or the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. 
Again, Luke 8, verse 1. Jesus went through all the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Chapter 9, verse 2. Jesus sent them then, the disciples, on a mission and to go out and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. Then, to, to two would-be followers of Jesus who, who came to him and said, we'll, we'll follow you, but first let us go and do this. To two of them, one of them said, I'll, I'll, I'll follow you, but i got to go first bury my father. And he, by that he didn't mean that his dad was dead, but that his dad was an old man and that he wanted to take care of him until he died, and then he would come follow Jesus. And Jesus replied to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That's interesting. Luke 9 60 to 62. And then people, the Gentiles, who come from the east and the west and, and from the north and the south will recline at table in the kingdom of God. While the supposed children of the kingdom, the Jews, will be cast out. And finally, Fear not, little flock. I love this one. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Ah, little flock. That's a double diminutive, as I pointed out many times, I think, already. Little, he uses the word little, and but the term flock itself means small, a small flock, a little small flock. So in conclusion here, the passages uh, that we read earlier in chapter 17, verses uh, 20 to 30 here, reveal the two-stage coming of the kingdom. The first stage of the kingdom of God is spiritual and invisible. And that's why Jesus said uh, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is. Or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. How? Invisibly. In the person of Jesus Christ. By the Spirit of God. It's an invisible kingdom. And it's a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom is now because Christ is reigning now. He must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. And he is redeeming, restoring a host of followers from every tongue, tribe, kindred, and people that uh, will be his forever. A people whom God has given to his son. We sang about that in the hymnal. But at the same time, he's defeating Satan and his enemies. We look around, we say, it doesn't look like it to me. Ah, but he is. He is. And so Jesus said to them, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and not see it. Oh, we, we, we love to see one of the days of the Son of Man. What's that mean? 
that, Je that like Jesus, going about healing people, mirac mir miraculous things done, just glorious things accomplished? We don't see that. It's quiet. It's not that God doesn't heal. And it's God, not that God doesn't do miracles, but, they, but they're not clear and obvious so much today. And what happens during that time? He says, you're going to have them do it. We'll say, look here or look there. Ah, what he's talking about there is we'll have people that will be claiming that they are performing the deeds of the days of the Son of Man. Jesus said, don't go there. Don't follow, don't follow him. Nuh-uh. But wait a minute, the time's coming when as the lightning lights up the sky, that will be another aspect of the days of the Son of Man when He comes back again. He came the first time, now He's gone. Then He's coming back again. And He describes it as, the, the, will be like the days of Noah, and the, like the days of Lot. Which seems like everything just going on as usual, but not. But it's not, because God's already working in it. He's already bringing about His will. And as Noah built the ark to save his household and the animals, then the flood came. As Lot remained in the city, and then the angels came that night and drug him out of the city, and the fire fell. So it will be, on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Right now he's not revealed. So if you people say, Oh, no, uh, we look over here, look over there. No, Jesus said, just wait, because the day is coming when the Son of Man will be revealed. The question here is, the lesson, remember Lot's wife. <laughs> whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. And I tell you that the night that that in the night there will be two in the bed, one taken, the other left, not rapture, judgment. There will be two women grinding together, one taken and the other left, not in rapture, judgment. And they and then they will say, Where, Lord? Where the corpses are, <laughs> wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. Are you prepared? Are you prepared to leave the world behind and follow Jesus exclusively? Are you a kingdom seeker? Matthew 6, 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Father, thank you for this gospel this declaration of the good news of the Son of Man. Oh, how we look forward to seeing Him walk the earth in the days of His flesh. Seeing Him minister to the multitudes. Rejected. Hung on a cross. Buried risen the third day and appearing to these two on their road to Emmaus and declaring to them all that the scriptures taught concerning that matter so that they could say did not our hearts burn within us oh Lord let 
your word burn within us too. And we just praise you and thank you for what you'll accomplish now in Jesus' name.